0: Hi everyone, welcome to Food Talk. Producer Stephen Ray Morris here to introduce today's conversation which takes place in New York City. Food Tank recently held a live event in New York City that focused on the intersection of tech and AI in the food system. Speakers including Alexander Gillette, who's the CEO of How Good, Bertha Jimenez, CEO of Rise Products, and Jennifer Goggin, co-founder of Startle Innovation, discussed how good tech can lead to better food. A huge thank you to our partners NYU, Steinhardt, the NYC Food Policy Center at Hunter, and Salon.com for the amazing series of events and to Facebook's community leadership program without whom these events would not be possible. Enjoy the show.
1: So I'm really excited to have Alexander on stage. He is the CEO of How Good, which is a food rating company based in Brooklyn. Um, he'll talk more about it later, but it's the uh, the company has the world's largest database on sustainable food, and they work with grocery stores, among others, to provide a sustainability score for different products using 60 indicators. So let's give him a round of applause for being here. So, so my first sort of question, and it's, it's, you know, what's your elevator pitch? What's your 30-second sort of description of, of what you do? Uh,
2: I mean, you pretty much nailed it. <laughs> uh, so we are the largest database on food now as well, cosmetics and cleaning supplies, uh, sustainability data in the world. So we have information on the environmental, the social, and the animal welfare uh, that impacts that each of those products have. So, it's over a million UPCs um, or products uh, and over 127 different data points in the food system Mm -hmm. and 155 in cosmetics. Um, And the goal there is to try and make a centralized location for all of that data Mm -hmm. so that everyone who wants to understand the impact of an ingredient or a product doesn't have to do all the research themselves
1: sure and there are two sides to the company right sort of the consumer facing side and then the the product or company facing side
2: yeah so we work with groups like ahol del hayes to actually print sustainability scores right next to the price tag so Mm -hmm. when you're walking through one of their participating grocers uh you can see the score and you're wondering you know what's the difference between cage free free range free roaming certified humane and usda organic eggs uh, instead you see it on a, on a scoring system as to what the standards are and it simplifies the process and you do that for baby food, you do that for everything throughout the store and all of a sudden it makes that the ability to make a ethical choice easy. Um, there's an app for people to scan a barcode, to see why the product got sure. that score. Um, and then we work with brands to help eliminate issues in their supply chain. So, um, you know, working to, uh, with some of the biggest retailers in the world on the back end to try and eliminate uh, child and slight and slave labor from mm-hmm. their supply chains, uh, to identify where the major issues are. That you know, there's 40 million uh, people in those kind of conditions in the world, supported by the U.S. food system, and that's a that's a travesty. And uh, sure, when you can start to actually say this is how you can change that, it can have a big impact.
1: Well, it's interesting that you say ethical choice and not sustainable choice or healthy choice. And so, I mean, that sort of gets into it when you're looking at things like labor practices or child slavery. Why is that important to you, uh, you know, as one of the founders of this company and really being able to, to have that ethical choice made available to people?
2: Yeah, to me uh, and to how good, I think looking at sustainability in terms of a full picture, I think if you're Uh, extracting value from people without giving back. I think if you're abusive in that manner, it's just as bad to the world as it is to do that to animals, to do that to the environment. Um, And so we have to look to support a company because they've done something eco, uh, but that are doing other negative things, isn't a very uh, wholesome way to look at the system. Mm -hmm. And we, I think one of the things that we're most passionate about is actually, we don't even like stopping at the idea of sustainable. Um, so we like to look at the, if you think of the food system in terms of a spectrum, you have, you know, degenerative negative practices that are extracting, that are causing harm on one side. Sustainable is the midpoint, right? Yeah. That's when you're not doing harm. That's That shouldn't be our end goal. Our end goal should be regenerative, where you're putting more into the system than you're taking out. Sure. Um, and so that's really what we're reaching for. And I think how you affect humanity is as big a part of that as how you affect the environment and Absolutely. animals. Absolutely.
1: So one of the biggest questions I had when I started looking into you all and and realizing what you were doing, can you tell us about how you get all of that information and and how can you be sure that it's the right information and that it's true?
2: Yeah. I mean, there's no such thing as perfect data. I think any data scientist would be like, well, the word true data, it almost doesn't exist. I mean, people cite their data as true, but... um, there's always the human element. So what you try and do is just, you try and build up as many sources as possible. So we use 350 different uh, data sources Mm -hmm. and we're growing that library constantly, uh, so that you're not just- Can you
1: talk a little bit about where those sources are, what they are and where they're coming from?
2: So, you know, a really simple source that probably a lot of people use for different things would just be USDA organic, Mm -hmm. right? You understand when a product is grown by USDA organic standards exactly what the rules are, right? Um, And so you can plug that into our system and for a subset of crops you then know that they've achieved this subset of standards throughout their entire process. Um, When we're looking so there's two different steps. One is mapping what all the impacts mean. Mm-hmm. So we call it mapping the food system. So it's not just what's the impact of growing corn or what's the impact of growing tomatoes, it's if you grow tomatoes in California, uh, you have to weight water impact a lot higher than you do if you're growing tomatoes in Florida or sure. in Mexico, right? And so being able to say, Uh, not just for water issue, but for every one of those issues, where does it matter, in what areas, you know, what are the legally allowed pesticides, fertilizers, how do those play into Mm -hmm. it, and do that for every aspect along the growing practice, and then be able to use these sorts of sources to say, okay, that pesticide was or wasn't used.
1: So do the indicators change sort of based on current conditions? I mean, I'm sure that, you know, as the effects of climate change become more evident, do you have to change your indicators to sort of reflect that?
2: Yeah, I mean, we call it a living system, you know, in the same way that there's no such thing as perfect data. There's there's changing understandings of the science. I think one of the biggest shifts right now going on within the food system is the understanding that the vast majority of products we can actually grow in a regenerative way, right, right? Um, that we don't have to do it this way, um, but is there the will to make those changes? Um, And so now that we can identify and track, you know, with life cycle analysis what those impacts are for every single ingredient, we can start to say, okay, how can we improve this on a scale?
1: Is there will to change those things?
2: I tend to find that companies... You know, when you're looking at will to change, if you talk to the average person in the room, there's there's will to change right, this, right? Uh, people really care about these issues. When you're talking to companies, they tend to have some sort of focus, maybe driven by a passionate group of people mm-hmm. within that company. Mm-hmm. Um, it tends to be about certain issues, you know, that they identify as the things that they want to kind of lead the charge on. Mm-hmm. Um, I do believe that if you can get enough of them to do that across their categories, um, that it that it has a big change. You know, it's that idea that when Walmart shifted to CFLs, all of a sudden CFLs price dropped to a place where sure. people were willing to buy them. Um, and I, I don't think that's the perfect system, but in the system and the way that it's designed, I think that's the best way to achieve large-scale agricultural mm-hmm. change.
1: I, I'm also interested in, in how consumers <clears throat> are responding. Like the people, you know, moms and dads and, yeah. and you know, people like me who go to the grocery store sometimes so much information or another label or another indicator or you know another thing to scan with your phone can be really confusing uh, how are how are people responding to what you're doing
2: We call it the nascar effect you know um <laughs>
1: so many logos
2: <laughs> so many I, I mean there's over 400 different uh labels now uh, some of those labels if the product was grown in a different country they have different standards for what the same label means um, and, you know, pieces of information like that erode customer trust mm-hmm. um, because, obviously, they don't know where that ingredient came from, right. so they don't know what standard, and they don't even know. They just hear that, oh, this can have different standards. And when you hear that once, you start to question. It's the same thing in the egg aisle that we were talking about. There's yeah. this people stare, you know, at those different standards, and they don't know which one's which. Um, what we found, you know, the data side's really interesting. When you put our ratings up, for example, in the store, you see a best-rated product averages 180% lift in sales. Mm, um, that's in, amazing. In baby food, it's over 1,000%, right? And that's coming at the expense of lower-rated products. So you see a customer shift towards um, those better-rated products, and I think that there's, there's this desire for it to be simpler and transparent. The opposite is also true. If you look at our app, um, when we launch our ratings in a grocery store, less than 1% of people download our app to Mm -hmm. scan those barcodes, right? And I like to talk about this very honestly because it's like, look, you can't ask people to take extra steps. They have, whether it's their kids or a meeting or whatever the next thing is, they're in and out of that grocery store. The number of steps extra that we've worked out a person will take to buy something more sustainable is zero. And that doesn't mean they don't care. Yeah. When you put the ratings up and the steps are turned into zero, they shift their purchases. Yeah. Yeah. And and we don't do this only in high-end stores. We do this across different uh, income levels. Um, and you see that shift across all of them. And sometimes it shifts uh, where you'll see those, um, you'll see the increase in sales happen when there's a smaller price differentiation yeah. between the two products. Um, but you see it across the entire country. I mean, the list that one of our first, Trials was down in Texas, you know, and uh, I was in these rural, very poor communities that when you brought up these issues, there wasn't a lot of like passion um, from the groups of people that I was talking to and I was wondering how it was gonna perform, but then the ratings went up and you saw people really respond to them. Um, And then we started to talk to them about why, and it's about that simplicity, right? They want to support products, and for them it was a lot about the social uh, issues and about it being connected to their local community.
1: that's great. Yeah. That's great. And having that information and not having to do something extra, I think, is really key. Yeah. Um, so much onus is placed on consumers. They really don't need, like you said, another thing to do. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that you and I talked about in, in preparation for this is this idea that, you know, what you've done so far is products that have already been developed but there's a real opportunity to work with product developers and help them make these changes very or you know help them develop products that don't need these changes in the first place can you talk about why that's important to you
2: yeah i mean starting a product off is so much easier than changing the formulation yeah Um, uh, we were talking to one major brand and they talked about reducing you know by a couple of milligrams the salt content in their product and that they literally get thousands of angry tweets and emails oh. uh, sent to them, yeah. right? And so some of the larger companies are very cautious about changing their ingredients. Some are more willing. Um, we have uh, one partner who is, uh, we literally developed them an entire dashboard so that they can see the impact of every single ingredient in every one of their products. They can see how their products compare to the rest of the right. industry. And then they can change one of those products. They can say, okay, what's the worst impact across multiple categories, so let's say water usage or labor issues, right, and they can see on a dashboard all these impacts, and then they can click that ingredient and see what their other sourcing options Mm -hmm, would be, mm -hmm. and, you know, they can shift from uh, the negative labor and water issues in California for their cashews and look at what's going on in Spain where there's kind of more ideal natural conditions as well as actually better um, labor conditions, Um, and they could look at that as a sourcing option.
1: So interesting. I mean, I think, you know, before I started looking into you more deeply, I thought you probably worked with smaller or medium sized companies, but you're working with a lot of big companies because you see the the potential there, right? If they make an incremental change, it's, you know, you mentioned Walmart before, it's a lot bigger. Can you talk about, you know, that work and why, how are are these big companies responding to you? Are they, they, (sighs) I mean, I can imagine it was very different a few years ago. Yeah.
2: I I mean, the landscape is, ridiculously different. I mean, you know, eleven years ago when we started, how good, you know, it was purely working. Um, once we once we started focusing on grocery, it was like co-ops and these small stores. You know, there's this there's this one store <laughs> down in D.C. called Roots, and they created all these yeah. amazing rules, like uh, every single product in their store had to have a good or above rating from How Good. Uh, otherwise, they were going to remove it from their shelves, oh, I love and it. they sent all the manufacturers <laughs> letters, being like, "You have two years to reach this standard." So you know? interesting, yeah. Uh, and that passion and the amount that they taught us—you know—that was a an early part of our process, and we we learned a lot from our partners. Was amazing, um, and it gave us time as well to build up our database, right? I think back then we were like, "We have thirty thousand products," you know, sure. and that
3: felt—I
2: <laughs> mean, that felt huge. Of course. Um, and now. Yeah, now we partner with, um, we've partnered with everyone from Walmart. Ajo Del Hayes is like, you know, 2,000 stores here in the US from Stop and Shop to Giant to Food Lion, right? Um, To working with groups like Dannon and, uh, you know, General Mills and these different players. And the reason we want to go there, and we said this, I remember some of our like early arguments with the food co ops, they were like, well, what happens if Walmart wants to use your system? Would you say yes? And we're like, yeah, of course and they're like no you can't that's you know this is how we differentiate ourselves and i'm like yeah but the bigger picture for what you're trying to do like walmart using this type of a system yeah. is a sign that you've created change by helping customers know that this is important and the food system having to adapt to that and then you can find the next step right you can lead by setting the next new standard right like i want to put myself out of business by making right. my data no longer a differentiator.
1: Right, right, that's a a really great point. I wanna turn to questions now.
4: Good afternoon, Uh, my name is Clay Gordon and I work in the field of cocoa and chocolate and there are a lot of issues associated, for example, with
0: um, ethical
4: trading and ethical sourcing. So I'm sort of wondering from a big data perspective about turning it backwards, can you do any meta-analysis to be able to understand the impact of um, fair trading systems like FLO? Right hmm. and examining their impact and going to them and saying you guys are not doing the job you want to do, not just focusing on the actual product itself.
2: Yeah. Um, so it's really interesting. One of the things we actually look at from a big data perspective is how much should we trust each one of the different labeling systems? Yeah, and there are hugely different standards and and fair trade in general is one of the spaces where the values often or the, the rules change country by country, region by region. You know, um, there are some certifications that literally the company is just saying, we adhere to these standards and no one is going to the farm. Mm. And there are other situations where there is someone who inspects a farm every year or more often than that. And so within our own rating system, yeah, we there's a huge amount of credence given to the ones that are sending people to farms and the ones that aren't give very little value to us Um, and one of the issues we've actually written reports for some of the big players on this issue Um, and basically what you end up having to do is you have to get down into the nitty-gritty and say these are the small nonprofits in that region that can go to the farms and assign because all of these other players just aren't giving you real data. They're giving you a feel-good factor uh, that May have the sales lift that you want in a short-term thinking, but when the picture of that child picking your cacao comes out, you know that's going to backfire. Mm-hmm.
4: There's a larger conversation
2: than I can have about that. Okay. Let's. <laughs> Are there any
1: questions on this side of the room? I want to make sure that we're giving equal time to both sides of the room. No questions. This is my noisy side. Really? Okay.
0: Hi, Hendrik from Berlin. Uh, how do you see the blockchain technology? Uh, playing a role inside like, your business, but also uh, the future of labels uh, in general?
2: I mean, anything that's adding transparency and clarity, um, especially something that's uh, so secure, is a huge value add. I think implementation uh, in, the, in the field is going to be the most challenging, but once we find cost-efficient ways to really do that, it, all it can do... I mean, transparency is king here. Every, every data piece that you can add that gets more granular that can't be faked is key. You know, One of the things we have to do right now um, is direct people away from a whole bunch of factories in northern China that are processing fish and just say, like, you can't buy from any of these because a few of these are using child labor from North Korea, um, but they all mix their fish together. Right? Blockchain is a way that that could actually uh, be solved. Um, so, there's a lot of different applications. Um, and when you can narrow it down and actually just avoid the back actors rather than uh, eliminating an entire area of production, um, you, you force them to change because they're losing business. Uh, it's a cold way of looking at it, but it's the way that can get it done in those regions right now.
1: Great. Another question? Um, a very blunt question, but how do you make money? I mean this as in just how do you... I'm curious what the appetite is for funding or whether this is profitable for your partners, et cetera.
2: Um, Most of our money uh, comes from grocers. Um, So grocers pay us to rate all the products. Um, We now have... In the beginning, we were like, you know, we're not going to work with with manufacturers because we're rating their products. But then we realized pretty much every rating outfit out there takes money from manufacturers. So if you think of USDA Organic, if you think of B Corp, if you think of all these great organizations, they get paid to do this. And so we said, look, we have this giant data and they're not using it because we're not selling it mm-hmm. to them. Mm-hmm. So we've started building these dashboards for manufacturers as well. Um, so we sell them access to do deep dives and, and basically look at how their products are reported. Um, and I think the, uh, we're also VC funded, so. You know, and both by impact invest, we're invested in in by non-profits, impact investors, and conventional VCs.
1: Okay, I think we're going to end questions. Thank you so much. Let's give Alexander a round of applause.
5: Now, please welcome Bertha Jimenez, CEO of Rise Products, moderated by Emma Cosgrove of Supply Chain Dive. Hi, everyone. I'm Emma Cosgrove. I'm a reporter from Supply Chain Dive, and I cover supply chains including, but not exclusively, food and agriculture. And I'm really excited uh, to be here to talk about good food and good tech today with Bertha Jimenez. Um, Bertha's going to tell you all about her. She's trying to solve a specific problem, and I think that figuring out the solution to that problem is easier than the work of actually solving it. So why don't you tell us what the solution
6: is first? That's the easy part, and then we'll talk about the hard part. Sure, hi how are you? Uh, so what we do is like we work with uh, or we collect organic byproducts and convert them into ingredients. To put it like easier, uh, right now we're working with the beer industry. We collect their byproduct that's called spent grain. This is just malted barley that have been already been used to make beer and we make it into a high fiber, high protein and low carbohydrate flour and then we sell that to chef, bakers, and food manufacturers.
5: And your company is called? Sorry, my company? The name of the company. Oh, I didn't say. Uh, Rice Products. There we go. Rice Products. Um, great. So problem solves.
6: Yeah. Right? So
5: easy. Fantastic. Every time I come to a food tech discussion, I feel like you get the problem, you find the solution, and then we're done. Amazing. Okay. Let's talk about the hard part. So it sounds like what you're describing is... Part of um, a growing concept in business, which is the circular economy. Could you explain how Rise Products plays into the circular economy?
6: Sure. So actually, we believe in something called industrial symbiosis. That basically is the same thing as in circular economy, but seen from the systems of industries and cities. And basically, what industrial symbiosis says is like the byproduct of a company can be the raw material of another company. So we're trying to foster. Like trying to see how we can make something out of this concept. And what we did was like, uh, we started to see, because we are living in New York City, what are the main industries in New York City? And that's where we find out that there's the breweries. There's a lot of beers in New York. And not just New York, but everywhere. And then we were like the weird people going to the brewery stores and asking, what is your waste? What do you do with your waste? So, like, that's how we kind of, like, started with this concept, because we, our mission was to reduce, we believe that, like, everybody can help reducing waste, but industries do play a big role on, you know, on what we consume, on what we use, where waste goes. So, that was our, uh, our mission, and still is.
5: Totally. Yeah, it's so interesting because uh, upcycling is a really hot topic right now. Food waste, obviously, is a hugely hot topic. And uh, it's often treated as this thing that we're all looking away from, but big business it makes money off of waste. They make money off of cardboard. They make money off of plastic. Waste is an income stream for most businesses. So can you talk about what what is the business of spent barley to date? What have they been doing with it before?
6: Yeah, uh, so actually for the breweries, breweries, for the beer industry it's something like cost them a lot of money cuz it cost them depending how big they are like around ter- 10 to 13 cents per pound per of this spent grain so to give you an idea a small like a super tiny brewery in Brooklyn in Goa is, is a two barrel system which is like super tiny that produces 200 pounds every time they create something and the average beer has like the craft I'm just talking about the craft they are like 15 to 20 barrels this is like 1500 to 2000 pounds of this grain so like every day in Brooklyn not just in Brooklyn in Queens and mostly Brooklyn and Queens there's like thousands of this spent grain that send it to the landfill and it's like because we don't have more outlets like that's our main outlet and we don't even have uh, our uh, landfills we our landfills are in Carolina in Ohio so it, it is like there's a lot of money involved when there's like something that's so uh nutritional like so good that this is, is this barley there's a few com- like a bigger companies like um Budweiser and Heiser Bush they do sell it uh but they sell it for 70 dollars per ton which is like super super tiny so like for the farmers um 70
5: dollars per ton Yes. $70 per ton. That does not sound like a good return. No. Sounds like the truck would cost more than $70. Actually, they are losing money.
6: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that, that's, that's a problem for, for all the beer yeah. industry. Yeah.
5: Okay. So for a small brewery in New York City, it sounds like it would be a no-brainer if you could off-take their waste. It sounds like it would save them a lot of money. For a company like Budweiser, how is your solution attractive?
6: Yeah. So actually for Budweiser, like some, a company like Budweiser, first, as you say, they're not making too much money. And second, uh, they just like, it's important for companies to see how people perceive them, you know? So what Budweiser is trying to do is being like, uh, kind of like the outlet for sustainability. So they're looking for solutions, not only in this part, but like, you know, in their water treatments, in like other parts for for making beer. So it's also like something, first, like it's a perception thing, but also like if they make it into something valuable, it's not $70 a ton. It's more like (laughs) way (laughs) more. Which we can't share.
5: Um, Okay, great. So it sounds like it's a good sell on a lot of different fronts to your supply side. How have you been finding the sell side, so with the product that you make and trying to sell it?
6: Sure, Uh, that's a good question. So uh, luckily uh, we're in New York, so people are more open to try new things, Uh, but when we started, because like when we started, we didn't know exactly what to do, like actually we started testing different things like from cosmetics to construction material and we ended up in the food industry. Uh, We started talking with a lot of bakers and one of the things that we have found is like the people the the thing that the people really like was the flavor and then the nutrition was good and then like the sustainability story was good but the flavor was the main thing that people like so we switch even though we are like pro you know like our mission is sustainable sustainability but because we're talking about food the main thing is the flavor because nobody eats ideology, you know. <laughs>
5: <laughs> I love that. My first question for Bertha, the first time we talked, was why are we not talking about pet food right now? It's a massive market. It's very acceptable of byproducts. So tell me why we're not talking about pet food right now.
6: Well, it, it's it's something like we actually did, like at the beginning, and it's something that's still out there for us. We just wanted to tackle, like, you know, if you see the EPA system of, like, where sh- how we should talk. Uh, how we should manage waste or how we should like the first thing is reduction in the source the second is feed it to people the sec like then is animals and pets so we just wanted to make it like the most valuable for this but that doesn't mean that we are not looking into the pet food actually like we're talking with a, like a couple of pet food companies right now uh, but I think that's that's uh, something that we probably will go to
5: it's a chicken-egg problem too, right? Because pet food is a volume game. It's not a premium game. Yes. And as a startup, you kind of need a premium to get going. Yes. And you need uh. good people who will pay, overpay for your product so that it can grow. Overpay for your groceries, people. It's important. <laughs> if you can afford it, I'm not kidding. Buy the most expensive product in your grocery store if it's sustainable, because you're the one who's going to buy it. Nobody else is going to buy it. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about scale, since we have arrived at scale. How do you get from the scale you're at now to the next rung? What do you need? Who do you need? What kind of funding do you need? Sure.
6: Uh, so, like, the, like, actually our first, first batch was like two pounds when we started, like, thinking about how to create a system. Uh, when was that? Uh, 2016. 2016. Okay. So, like, we make a, like, just like testing on a kind of, like, lab equipment. Yeah. Uh, we make two pounds. We're so happy about making two pounds. And actually, we, we make it ten pounds then later and we were so happy. And, uh, but of course, that costs a lot of money because it's just tiny amounts. Right now, we are, we have a small facility in Long Island City where we are able to produce like 300 pounds per each time we do it. And, but, because we were like trying to scale, we were also like looking like how we can use also machineries that are not used like like potential, even though it's not like the perfect system, we have always like trying to see like, okay, this is the perfect, but let's go for the good and let's be resourceful about what, about what is out there.
5: So existing co-packers machinery that would maybe
6: yeah. dormant overnight or dormant during the day that you could share. Yes. Uh, so we are working with a malt house in Upstate because they have dehydration systems. It's not the perfect one, but it's good enough. And actually, with them, we're able to create, uh, 2000 pounds. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot. And now we're our new partner, which is, uh, Budweiser. Uh, they're able to create like in five to six months, something like two tons. <laughs> so.
5: And how is the processing for, a supplier that large gonna go do you have the existing resources to process that, or is Budweiser handling the processing?
6: yeah, so with Budweiser, we have been like talking from like the beginning, but of course it's like a huge company, and we were like just like a tiny idea at that time uh they still like we mm-hmm. we gave them like a couple cookies and they love it so <laughs> you know uh so with them, what we found is like they are really good manufacturing things. Uh, production is like something that they love doing. And we are really do good on R&D. So, and then sales and marketing, is something that kind of we are going to do both together. Mm-hmm. So like the way that we are looking at this partnership is like we will be the kind of like the R&D shop. They will be the production shop. And the sales and marketing, even though it's like more like we have to put more work but it will also like open their doors for the distributors yeah
5: I love this because it fits into your funding story I think really really well and might you said it might give you a little more time before you need to raise again can you talk about that
6: yeah so when we started uh, we were blessed that we uh is a uh, food accelerator here in New York City they gave us our first 50k and that at that time was like A lot for us. (laughs) Uh, But it was great because, like, we first of all, we didn't have any any experience with food. We were like mostly, uh, uh, my background is uh, in mechanical engineering and I have a PhD in technology and management, so I have no idea of food. So they even gave us about the vocabulary, we were calling it inputs and outputs, uh, or raw materials, and they're like, call it ingredients, you know. Some big companies would really dig that vocabulary, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So at the beginning, like, we were, like, really, like, kind of like, okay, let's start it, let's go, let's fund. But then we saw that there's, you know, because we're, like, so small and we're so in the beginning of the race, we have to, to have a lot, and we wanted to create our own production facility at that time. You have, you need a lot of money to have. Production facility, especially if you wanna produce it in New York City. Like, ideally, I would love to be in New York City, but it's just so so expensive, you know. So, and you need like big machines. It's no, it's not. It's not like little, you know. Like, I don't know if you have seen a spangreen, but it's really heavy. It's really a lot of volume. So we need like a lot of space, a lot of machineries, and we're talking with, with like VCs and angels and everybody love us and they say like find yours like your lead investor and I'll give you money
5: and that they all say that
6: yeah <laughs> and I'm like okay and then after a while we're like you know what let's just focus let's run this as a small business it's two different things but let's just focus on the business on the day-to-day like selling like actually we are selling brownies and that is what give us a, the cash flow um, We also sell the flower, but, and then when we have this contract with Budweiser, actually it was like something like, it it was really great because like then we also like understood better our our growth strategy. And first right now, because like they will take the responsibility of the capex, we don't have to raise as much as we thought about before.
5: So the capex for anyone, they're putting a lot of the money down essentially. And uh, Rise doesn't have to provide it themselves.
6: Yeah and we will have to raise more like for, CapEx also like so involve a lot of like installation of equipments and like machineries and everything. So we have to raise more for operations and that's way less. So, and actually we also like saw like, you know, we should like, even though we, like everybody wants to have money, but it was not a good moment for us to get that money because we will have to give a lot of our equity and then we will lose a lot of control. So then we're like, okay, let's, you know, let's just, like, kind of, like, be resourceful as usual. And then then let's, like, you know, work with this contract, work in the day-to-day. And then, you know, with a partner like Budweiser, then you can raise money faster. And learn
5: a ton as well yeah. as working with best in the field. Yeah. Um, we're going to throw it to Q&A in just two seconds, but I want to close with one little question for Bertha, which is, it's always interesting to me when um, startups head out of the US to change the cost dynamics. You mentioned to me that you guys have some some work going on outside the US, is that true? Am I remember remembering that correctly? Uh, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
6: Well, Can you tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> well, like, that's because of uh, our connection with Budweiser. Oh, it's Budweiser, yeah. OK, gotcha. Never mind. Q and A. Who has a question for Bertha?
5: Hi. Um, I was curious a little bit more um, about the process and what you're doing to convert it.
2: Is this something that you know someone in the industry, if they're hearing about what you're doing, could easily duplicate, or is there something that is really you know special or
5: different that you guys have discovered rather than just the the concept?
6: Sure. Uh, so we have a patent pending process. Uh, I think. Like there's a lot of dehydrations out there. The most important thing is like how you spend less energy to dehydrate something, and also like one of the things that we put into consideration, like well, like as you can hear my accent, I'm from I'm Spanish speaking. I'm from Ecuador. So one of the things that we put into consideration was like being able to take something not just for here but somewhere else, and so our our equipment use like a, it's not like super high-tech like this like super x-rays or super laser technology that's just gonna be available here but something like it's like a lot of like little process that could be used somewhere else but i think one of the things like at the beginning we were like really focused on like hey let's protect the process like protect the technology and that's great but also like then we realized that also like we have to try to find great partners to protect the source, you know, because you can have the great process, but if you don't have a, even though there's like tons of breweries out there, but you know, like you also have to have very good connections with the beer industries.
3: Hi, first of all, congratulations on the contract with Budweiser. That's amazing. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, I'm curious, as you think about such a big partner that you're going to be working with and selling the flour, how part how will that part of your market change, right? Because you're going to have so much flour to now sell. So, what do you anticipate around that?
6: Yeah, uh, that's a good question. So, actually, like, I didn't have too much time to talk about the flour, but like the the, the flour from the craft industry, like the craft breweries. It's really delicious and really flavoursome, um, but there's like there's a ton of them. So there's like this problem that you have to. We were creating like our special blends for lights that come from IPAs and Pilseners, and darks that come from stouts and porters. Uh, but the problem is like when we were like talking with like some of our potential clients, like Kellogg's and Nestle, one of the key question was like, how can you maintain that it's always gonna be exactly the same flower? And it's hard to maintain it with craft. Not like we're still like working with craft cause they have like amazing flavors, but it's hard to maintain that kind of consistency that the big uh, companies are looking for. So that's why we're like also like super happy about having this partner because just then you can say like, it's always gonna be exactly the same consistency.
5: We have a question in the back. Do we have time for one more? I'll just repeat the question. The question is how does the nutritional um, content compare to other flowers? Sure. Uh, so
6: the craft, it's 12 times the fiber, two times the protein, and one-third of the carbohydrates compared to the normal flour. Uh, the macro, like the ones that come from Budweiser, because the extraction process is better, actually he have three times the protein and 11 times the fiber, but the carbohydrates are are around the same.
5: Wonderful, thank you, Bertha, and thanks everyone for coming tonight. Please welcome to the stage Jennifer Goggin, the co-founder of Startle Innovation, moderated by Jenna Liut Heritage Radio Network.
4: Hi, everybody. Um, my name is Jenna Liut. I'm the host of Eating Matters on Heritage Radio Network. And I want to welcome you to my conversation with Jennifer Guggen, where we're going to be talking about good tech's role in making a better food system. So let's get right into it. You've been in the field for quite some time, a veteran. Can you
3: tell us how you kind of got your start and what companies you founded? Sure. Um So I've been in the food industry for about a decade now, which actually isn't that long, but it feels like a really long time. Um, I started really in the food side of things, not food technology. I ran operations at a local food distributor. So we had a warehouse, we had trucks going all around the Eastern coast and then delivering them to restaurants and um, other wholesale accounts in the city. I thought at the time it was a very innovative, unique offering to be able to deliver local food in kind of one aggregated system and really knowing exactly what farm it was coming from but we were executing it in a very old school fashion. And so that experience I think is what led me to the food tech side of things where the idea was you could really harness the power of technology to enable these changes or, or different systems that we want to see um, in the food industry, just, just do them better and faster and more at scale. Um, so after I left that company, I started two uh, startups, both software, companies. One was an online marketplace for local food, and then the other one was more of a um, digital marketing traceability platform for local food in retailers. Um, and I just said that in a sentence, but that was seven years of my career, so that was, <laughs> that was spent a long time kind of building those two companies up. And then after I left the second one, I decided that I wanted to kind of play around a little bit more and not focus so much on one very narrow piece of the industry. Um, so that led me to starting Startle, which is my current company with two partners. And we are an innovation studio where we work with very early stage, raw ideas and IP coming out of um, university and research labs and figure out how to turn that into a commercially viable, feasible, real application that can then be, you know, um, sent to a, a partner in the industry, a large, larger company with resources that can just kind of push go and like push it out into the world. So you got your start, you were like food
4: systems, logistics, supply chain, sexy. You were all
3: over it. Uh, all over, <laughs> yeah, all over Excel and Facts, you yes. know, inventory-less. is very cool.
4: So, but, but like what made you decide to focus on, I mean, and it was sourcing, right? I mean, that is kind of what you were focusing on. What made you decide to start there at a, as an intervention point? And then I want to talk about kind of where we're going
3: i mean honestly i i started my career in finance and after i left my finance job i wanted to be in the food industry i didn't really know anything about it at all so i started volunteering with just food in the city Um, and through them i met this company that was doing the local food supply chain so it wasn't necessarily conscious like i understand everything and this is the biggest problem it was more Here's an opportunity to learn and to try it out and let's see how it goes.
4: So over the past 10 years, what are the biggest kind of changes you've seen, at least on the supply chain side?
3: Um, I think the whole food industry, the whole food ecosystem has just gotten way more complex with more dynamics and more players. So... Um, if I can interrupt you, yeah. what do you mean by ecosystem? Are we just talking about
4: general food systems or? Yeah. I like it. I like it.
3: It's like everything that goes into the food world. So every player that's involved in food, um, all the different partnerships, all the different avenues that things could go through, it's, it's, it kind of sums up everything. And that, that is what's actually gotten more complicated because before this this shift, the dynamics were very linear, the players were kind of very stable, so you had the the farmer, the processor, um, the distributor, a middleman, the CPG company, the retailer, the consumer, and kind of just went in this one direction. And now you've got big tech coming in, so you've got Google and Amazon playing in this space, you've got a universe of startups, and um, the investors and the incubators that are supporting them. You have healthcare coming in, because they see the connection now between food and what they do. Um, and the consumer is no longer one homogeneous mass. It's, you know, we're all looking for very specific things and we're not afraid to send that feedback the opposite way. So, so things have just become a lot more interesting. Complicated. Complicated and interesting, yeah. (laughs)
4: Um, and I guess looking back, at uh, your work on sourcing and kind of like looking forward, where along the entire, so I'm supply chain obsessed these days, so, and that's your background, so we're gonna be talking a lot about it today. Like where is a big intervention point that you, in looking at the whole system, right? That you would say, right now, we need to focus on this one aspect, like, is, and, and tech especially and i i know that's like a really broad question but would it be like in transportation and packaging if you had to kind of select where technology can be applied to make the biggest impact fastest where do you think that would be
3: <laughs> that's like solve that's all of like like our problems right now yeah. um yeah i i feel there's i think there's a lot of places in the supply chain that, that could be immediately attacked and, and actually like how good was talking about a lot of them. And food fraud and traceability is a huge one that technology is very clearly poised to help with. Um, opening up new distribution channels and markets so it makes it easier for smaller newer food companies with different better products can really launch without going through the whole, you know, we've got to go in the shelf space and, and all that that whole process. Um, something a little bit more Out there that I find really interesting and intriguing is the idea of changing the way our um, produce and other bulk items are valued so right now it's very much a commodity based system Um, it's very binary if you're looking at a carrot it's organic or it's not organic and the pricing is pretty much market based on supply and demand but there's a lot of pieces that go into growing that carrot Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of values that are behind it from the seed that that the farmer chose that how healthy the soil is that the carrot's grown in, to how fresh it is, and you know where it's coming from. Um, and all of those things are obviously measurable and quantifiable. And, and if we can figure out a way in which the products that are grown, let's say a carrot that's grown in very healthy soil and has been transported just a you know a couple hours down the road, so therefore it's fresher, it has more nutrients, both because it's fresher and because it's grown in better soil. Um, that's more valuable, and the farmer should get paid more for that. That carrot. Um, so I think that that just changing the the mentality of the way that we look at the produce commodity market, I think, is really interesting.
4: Hopefully, that farmer gets paid more. <laughs> it's maybe a big assumption. Um, in I think with like a lot of things, with I mean. With kind of product innovations and with technology, you start with the idea that you're going to solve one specific issue and you really work towards that. Um, but then, you know, I think that especially with technology, there are these ripple effects that we might not have totally thought all the way through, especially when you're dealing with something like the supply chain. Have you come across maybe uh, a certain technology that you think is? exemplary of that, like where it was created for one thing and then it has all of these kind of unintended consequences that we are now really realizing we should have thought through a long time ago.
3: (laughs) Um, You're like glyphosate (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, the the one that comes to mind, which isn't exactly answering the question, but I think it's kind of close is plant-based protein, which is obviously a very huge area of interest right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And I find that fascinating not because I'm a vegetarian slash vegan, but because there's also this big push towards uh, clean labels and and simpler ingredients and uh, less processed foods. And there's studies that are coming out that processed foods are really bad for us. And yet, a lot of people are very, very excited about this literal ultra process created in a lab product. And I'm not saying it's necessarily bad. I'm not anti-plant-based proteins because there's obviously a lot of good to it. But I think that's an example of there's kind of always two sides of that coin. You ha- you're making trade-offs and you have to understand what happens. And so sometimes I think about plant-based protein and I wonder if we're going to look at that burger, for example, in 30 years, the way we look at... Um, tv dinners now and we're we're now being like oh crap we should have thought about what that's going to do to our bodies and and what we're actually eating and and how can we get that back out of our supply chain yeah
4: um whose responsibility do you think it is to really think through some of these questions like how do you encourage i mean you as an entrepreneur right like what would motivate what do you think would motivate other entrepreneurs um, and people in this space to really kind of think through some of those repercussions instead of just being like laser focused on one you know what they're doing specifically or maybe what their funders want them to be doing
3: i think the market is starting to demand that in a really good way so the that idea of this the consumer being um no longer passive and and right now very much interested in a more of a values-based consumption system i think that and trans, the, the transparency traceability aspect. So everybody wants to know everything about where their food is coming from and how it was grown and made. Um, I think that's going to make the entrepreneur or the business start thinking through those, those questions.
4: Do you think that I'm, I was just kind of like, I remembered something I wanted to ask you a question ago. And it's about consumer driven innovation. Do you think that I'm, like, in thinking about something like a plant-based burger, is that, like, and the repercussions, like, are there serious pitfalls to the market kind of following where the consumers are really pushing for an inter- intervention point versus something that we might need a little bit more than what the consumers are saying? Did you get that? Um, <laughs> I don't know Yeah, I could, that. I I could know. take that in a couple different directions. <laughs> uh, let's Let's see. So, like, do we, you know, kind of where we, the consumer's role in driving the market versus where we kind of need to be going from, like, an overall, like, systems change?
3: Yeah, I mean, that, that you could think about that from the funding perspective. So, if consumers are, uh, well, if you take, like, venture capital funding, for example, and a lot of the money that's out there to fund these new companies, it's generally going towards, Things that consumers find interesting, that's easily scalable, that's, um, super convenient, very convenient and, and personalized. Get yeah, your food to you <laughs> as easy
4: as possible. Yeah, exactly.
3: That, that kind of thing, which, which is great. Um, but in the food system in particular, we also really need to be looking at, um, not so exciting areas like logistics, like processing facilities, um, things that don't scale easily, but need a lot of money to, to make. And I think that that, that can be a challenge for sure.
4: Yeah. Do you think that that's like an intervention point for government? I, I can't have a conversation with talking about government and, you know, policy and regulation. Do you think that like kind of governments like force driving technology in a certain way by through like incentives to do things that are maybe more um, innovative from like, let's say, like an agriculture or soil health perspective, something that you can't
3: sell directly to consumers? Yeah, I, to be honest... I'm ambivalent about the role of government. I don't think it's a bad thing (laughs) that they give incentives. (laughs) I I, like, I think incentives are wonderful, but I think a market based solution can also be wonderful too. And so I, you know, I think back to, um, well, actually, I mean, what what RISE is doing is kind of interesting because they are now using those large corporations that have the infrastructure and the facilities, and they're using those private resources to create a, a whole new thing, and that that's a really cool way of doing it. For Soil Health, if you go back to kind of the weird values-based system I was describing at the beginning, that's a market-based solution that you can start getting the consumer to pay for what they really want, which is also a good thing for the, the for the greater good, so soil health is kind of like a, a public good. Yeah, um, sort of a big gap though to get people to like. I, yeah, think I'm not saying through. it's easy yeah. at all. I, I just mean like if the like, government none of this is easy. None of it's easy, yeah. but if the government wanted to subsidize, you know, more slaughterhouses for local, uh, you know, livestock ranchers, that's awesome. But I don't know that that's necessarily going to happen. So I'm always trying to think of like what are the alternate solutions here.
4: Um, okay, so we have one minute left. Do you, um, what is something that you, in, in kind of like that you're particularly excited about right now and looking towards the future and the application of technology and creating a better food supply chain
3: specifically? Oh, it's interesting because I was about to say I am... Um more interested in a completely different area of the food system now (laughs) only because i've spent 10 years on the supply chain so while it's all like i i know it and it's it's great i have gotten really interested in the area of nutrition these Mm -hmm. days which is for me a completely new area but i think the emergence of um just all this i mean it, it kind of comes back to the data idea where nutritional studies I'm sure we're all familiar with those headlines that contradict themselves all the time. So, like I mean, that's eggs. the nutrition field.
0: It, it, yeah, yeah that's the
3: field of nutrition yeah. because it's hard to get this information that you need. Like, people are bad at tracking their meals. There's so many other things that impact how your body absorbs nutrition, like all external factors or your genes or your stress level or whatever. Um, that has been really hard to figure out what is actually good for us and what's not good for us. Mm-hmm. And I think the... Um, you know, all the tests that are coming up and people willingly tracking their food with with pictures that now AI can identify what exactly you're eating that's very, very easy to do. I think that, that there's a lot of possibility there to add um, real nuanced, conc- or create real nuanced conclusions in the field of nutrition in general so we can all actually know what we should or shouldn't be eating for ourselves.
4: All right. I think, like, right on cue, which is never happened to me before. <laughs> uh, I think we're going to take some questions from the audience.
0: You talked about uh, uh, big tech coming into the field. Um, and When we talk about good tech and bad tech, uh, we had some experience with big tech coming into fields and disrupting stuff and making a lot of bad stuff. Uh, how do you see the chance that that might also happen? And uh, where do you, what do you think has to happen that we have more good tech in food so we can achieve the goals that we... I'll share here.
3: That's a very good question. Um, there's certainly a danger that it skews bad, um, but I think to the extent that big tech coming in remains more of a platform and more of, you know, different channel distribution channels, or selling channels, or just enabling um, new innovations to come to light, then that, that's a good thing. I think that's the, the good direction that it could possibly go in.
4: I actually kind of on, uh, to follow up on that, th- I'm thinking about like the, ha- like how you kind of prevent the sort of, what is the Facebook motto? Like fail fast, fail, fast. fail yeah. terribly. No, that's not it. But you know <laughs> what I mean? Like build, build <laughs> fast. Yeah, fail, fail fast. Know. Yeah, all and of often that. or
3: something. Yeah. <laughs> it's not great for food.
4: Yes. It's yeah. not right. I mean, no. can you just say it like, Quickly, why that's like particularly bad motto when applied to this industry?
3: Um, yeah. I mean, there's, there's, first of all, you're working with things that directly impact people's health. So it's not great to like put a product out there that you think may or may not fail and in six months and we'll be like, whoops, sorry, you all eat that thing that's poisoning you. That's not <laughs> great. But also in the, like in the ag, ag industry, the cycle is long, right? So the farmer has one chance a year to get their crop right. And so you can't really, mess around with that too much because there's a lot riding on that and, and it's a longer cycle and so I think that that is another reason why VC funding might not be great for the food system when you're thinking about supply chain and physical goods and actually growing things
4: That's because it. there's that pressure to get big and go, to get go, go big and really scale fast, fast yeah. and,
3: and move faster than the natural systems would allow
4: Hi, sorry, I'm behind a column. Um, this is really fascinating. Actually, I think your last point about looking at nutrition and all the different factors that affect it um, really suggests research to me. And I wonder how you are envisioning the role of technology in that kind of research. Because similarly, you can't feed some people and not feed other people and see what happens, right? So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
3: Yeah, so that is more like possibly Big Brother-esque, Big Data creepiness, where you've got people, just individuals, all of us, some of us are tracking our food because we wanna lose weight, some of us are just interested. Um, People are accumulating the data on themselves and people are testing their genetics all the time and people are testing their microbiome through all these different kits now. Um, So you're starting to get all the data that you might possibly need or like there are wearable glucose sensors that continuously monitor your, your glucose levels. If you could somehow like pull that together, pull out the relevant pieces and kind of tie all those different pieces together, I think the researchers could get a better idea of of what's actually going on. Does that that answer your question?
4: All right, I, I don't know. We have maybe time for like one more super quick question.
3: Hi, I had a question about your current work with Startle.
5: You mentioned that you're taking ideas and then turning them into solutions that are commercially viable.
3: What are you looking for in an idea that would let you know that it has potential to be commercially viable? We were just talking about that yesterday. Um, it, I don't know. It's hard because the, the whole point of us or our whole reason for being is that a lot of this technology is being created, um, in labs is done from an academic perspective. And so on the surface, it might not be clear that it could be really impactful in a, in a very commercial way. Um So what we have been doing so far is, when we come across an idea that that we're like, we think we could imagine this in some some application or another, we do just a lot of, I, I don't want to sound like too, uh, I don't know what the word is, something not great, but like we do a lot of iterating and, you know, workshopping and uh, market research. So we'll interview people in the field. We're looking at right now um, a technology that can help detect foodborne pathogens and leafy greens. And so for that, it's very raw, like the the way it is now, the application is now, could never scale. But I'm talking to a lot of um, greens, packers and processors and growers to see where their pain points are and, and what they would be looking for and if we can somehow shape this to fit what they need.
4: All right, we're gonna leave it there. I wanna thank Food Tank, NYU and Salon for um, hosting us. And Jennifer, thanks for chatting thank with you. me.
1: Thanks for listening today. A shout out to our producer, Stephen Ray Morris, who makes this podcast possible. And please subscribe and rate this podcast wherever you listen. It would really mean the world to me. You can check out Food Tank at foodtank.com. Email me at danielle at foodtank.com. And follow me on Twitter at Danny nierenberg and on Insta at Food Tank. Thanks again. See you next time for Food Talk.
0: Thank you again for listening. Join us to see the podcast recorded live at the upcoming Food Talk event in a city near you by visiting foodtank.com slash events. Tickets are always free for Food Tank members. So join now and we'll see you there.